What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I am here with my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, wellness check. How are you feeling after this weekend? Very well, man. To the yes. bad people you say not today, right? To death. We're going to be talking Thrones, Avengers, and a couple of uh, hip-hop albums to start. Hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. You can find any way you want to listen to the pod there. And we really appreciate those reviews on our iTunes page. Shout out Troutfield for that most recent review. I see you. Dave, we're going to start here with Rico Nasty. Uh, I want to get through the music because obviously we're going to be talking Thrones and, and Endgame for a while. There's a lot to dig into there. We did XXL Freshman last week. Check that out if you haven't already. I didn't know Rico Nasty was dropping an album this coming week, and you had mentioned her as a possibility for the XXL Freshman list. 18-minute album, Anger Management. I gave it a listen. I was pretty impressed. A couple songs on here that really stood out. I think the rest was okay. What was your take on this project? It was not on my radar until last minute as well. I know as far as Rico goes, she last put out Nasty last summer and now Anger Management. This is her first like collab mixtape. It's with Kenny Beats and she's made me a lot of music with Kenny recently. Uh, the Kenny DJ tag, he likes to throw out there a lot that she did for him, obviously. But yeah, this was an unexpected eight, quick 18-minute you know, they, they put out some Lucy's the past few months, and uh, none of them are even on here, so they just kind of threw this out there. But yeah, I think it was cool just kind of throw it out there, release, because her s- relative internet stardom, I think, is continuing to grow, and this is a nice little, I think, jumping in point for people, because her sound has changed a little bit recently. But yeah, I, I liked it a lot, but I agree with you. I think there's a few s- clear highlights and some other s- songs that just sound like other Rico songs. Yeah. So, like I said, this is one of my first times really, like, digging into her. And what I I found most appealing to her and probably what sets her apart from a lot of the, her other counterparts and peers is she really has this intensity that comes through when she, when she raps that brings this awesome energy. And she can bring that to almost any flow. And I feel like she stays at level, like, 9 or 10 for most of her songs on this, which oh yeah, was what I found most appealing. Even the songs I didn't like, I was like, well, at least I can like bob along to this and like I'm getting something out of it. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Hayton is the one we add to the playlist and was I think by far the best song off this. But I also really enjoyed Sellout, which came I think two songs after that on the track list. I thought that was also a really strong showing from her. What song stood out to you? And what did you like about this album? Yeah, I also like Hayton. Jay Z yep. sample, hard to deny. Just really cool, really smart use. You know, if you're gonna sample a legend like that you have to do it do it well i think i think that she did and uh, i mean shout out kenny too because kenny i had him as the producer of the year last year i know a lot of like mainstream shows didn't even like nominate him you know for their awards but he's just really impressive producer who works with all kinds of people but more importantly makes such a wide variety of beats that while he's not as famous as like murder beats or metro boom and i think kenny beats can really do a lot and we talked a lot about him or Vince Staples on FM. He did, I think, nine of the 11 tracks on that album last year. But for Rico, personally, you know, it's funny because when she like first first came out, her first two tapes and like the first songs I heard of hers, she actually kind of sounded way different. She had like more of this like bubblegummy, bubbly aesthetic similar to like peak Little Yachty. Uh, her first like big hit was called uh, Hey Arnold. She had another song called I Carly. And you listen to those songs, and they sound a lot different from like the Rico we started to get last year with Nasty. And uh, she's definitely thrown that thrown that aesthetic away. But it's kind of weird. I never would have guessed that she would like make songs like Rage last year. These like metal infused, clearly meant to be moshed out when performed live songs. And this new this anger management tape, it's just a lot of that. Like the first song, Cold, 
she like wraps her fucking ass off and i mean we talked about Blueface last week about being off beat i think rico almost raps too fast for the beat like she's just really fucking spitting on that song it's pretty pretty uh wild i think it's funny because the this mixtape is pretty short only 18 minutes i think that's good because she's so energetic and so aggressive on the tape that it's almost like it'd be too exhausting to listen to her do that for 40 minutes yeah. at least in my opinion but i also really liked uh, big titties i think that song's just really <laughs> funny bauer earth gang on that interesting trio along with kenny of course i like relative pretty short towards the end but that was really cool rico's aggression her energy is really fun just rapid fire flows that as you mentioned you can't really deny them even if the songs are you know whatever i I know recently people have critiqued her maybe for being too samey this is kind of all she sounds like and i think yes we could use a little more variety on this but overall it's really impressive and i mean she just has like really funny lines too like bitches on my dick but i ain't got no dick (laughs) i love it yeah i think there's a lot to take away from this and uh, I hope she gets an XXL freshman nod because um, I think her, Tierra Wack, all very deserving to be on the list. And check out that. And you can also check out our playlist. Uh, go to Spotify and search Nostalgia Best of 2019. Wrapping up on Rico, let's move on to Schoolboy Q. Crash Talk. Schoolboy Q's fifth album. Dropping it. His first one since, what, Oxymoron three years ago? 2016. Uh, blank Face. Blank Face. Oxymoron was 2014. Yep. Man it's been a while where's schoolboy q been well we were supposed to get this apparently last november but then when mac miller passed away he put it off obviously they were really really close friends and that was you know obviously a big loss for him but in the lead up to that and talking about that apparently he scrapped this album or versions of this album i think two times over so he recorded a lot of material and really changed 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 the project worked a lot a lot so yeah that explains the three-year layoff and we hadn't had a layoff that long from him uh, since he got famous so you know i'm not a huge deal in my opinion you know i'm, I'm okay with more than like the standard one two year drop but it's nice to have schoolboy back obviously because i think he's a big star that could still be bigger and he's part of tde and their art especially their top tier ones seem to take some time in between their albums to let let some hype build up yep. some anticipation so i i don't hate that either i think it's actually there's a little bit of, of fatigue sometimes when they're, they're dropping album after album i know anderson pock who just dropped his second album in what five months i was much more excited for the first one than the second one correct anyways shifting back to crash talk you know oxymoron and blank face i mean i think blank face especially were really really good and just so much to like off of those and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to like this album as much. I probably wouldn't put it up there with those two. I think that those two are just a step above. But I thought there was a lot of really solid tracks throughout this. And listening to it like the first time through, I actually got kind of a Earl Sweatshirt vibe almost from like the sound on it. Earl's most recent album. I guess it's kind of lo-fi-ish in a way. A lot of like samples chopped together. And I wouldn't say that this is totally like lo-fi, but just like that overall like feel where it's like, a little bit more infused from different genres. There's definitely some like old timey songs in there. So maybe some jazz, some some older R and B infused into these this sound. I think that really worked for Q in a lot of ways. I think especially the one that we added to the playlist, which I believe was fifty two hundred, was one of those songs where like the groove on that and the over and that like guitar. I don't even know what you call it, like that pluckiness around like the chorus was just so catchy. What did you think of, of this album and what really stood out to you about Crash Talk? Yeah, I think ultimately it's Schoolboy's least conceptual album hmm. 
to date and also his most commercial album kind of following in the footsteps of the black panther soundtrack j-rock's redemption it's kind of been the tde and of course kendrick's damn it's kind of been the tde mantra right now is to make these albums that are bigger to get more wide appeal and i think that can be both good and bad but for q after the layoff as we mentioned and after the i think hit off black panther soundtrack what was it called x i think that was a really mm-hmm. big song i think it's, it's his most streamed spotify song right now like it's hottest song so he's kind of been on the mind but we needed him to kind of reintroduce himself and i think that's what this album successfully does it's nowhere near as dense or as dark as blank face mm-hmm. which is funny that you compare it to earl because i think blank face probably reminds me more of earl just because mm-hmm. it's i think he's much deeper on that and it's almost more it's more of an obtuse album that's i think hard to get or revisit in full but Crash Talk, I think, is kind of more like Oxymoron, where it's just a lot of different kinds of songs, whereas Oxymoron, I think, kind of lean more into the banger aspect. Like, I yeah. revisited this past weekend. I still fucking love that record. It's There's so many hits on it. And I think Crash Talk's close, but probably, as you meant, as you said, it doesn't totally compare. But for a reintroductory album that wants to be a little more commercial, I think it's quite successful. I, I think that's a really good point about how this probably it wasn't as cohesive a project but he was definitely i think trying to be trying to get those hits trying to get those songs out there like chopsticks it's okay i don't really love the song that much you're being too nice it's bad <laughs> well i i think it's it's a song that's put out to be a single like it's one of those songs yeah. that's on the album that has travis it's just like all right we're gonna grab some attention here travis scott's super hot right now the song overall isn't great like single off it num num juice i think is fire just absolute fire i really enjoyed that one i do think especially like black i didn't think was really that great on it but he gets a lot of other really good features on this yep. kid cuddy on dangerous is phenomenal over the mm-hmm. yep and then you know he, he can hum with the best of them dude and then 21 savage <laughs> i think is a, a great verse on floating and even I really like Ty Dollar Sign and YG oh, yeah. on Lies. I thought they were both fantastic. I even like Little Baby on Water. Cardo's background vocals on the hook, and then Little Baby himself just kind of spazzes on it. So yeah, I think overall well chosen guests. But these are mainstream yep. A list rap guests, and that's not really something you would expect from Q. But I think this is imagine probably the Interscope influence of it all, and them wanting to make you bigger you know that he's talked about this in the past where after the success of studio off oxymoron's smooth r&b cut radio cut big platinum hit but definitely not like a man of the year not an aggressive rap, rapping banger they kind of wanted him to repeat that on blank face lp so he made overtime with miguel and justine sky and i think this time around he did lies because of ty dollar sign but you still have yg on there so he it doesn't sound like he compromised himself or anything at least that's that's my read on it you know it's funny num num juice again like not as conceptual as like john near of blank face but because it's a quick two minute banger and it was the lead single i think it it was really smart thing to get get this ball rolling because we've been wondering like when we get into album, when we get to hear and I think that, that was that was a smart choice. And Chopsticks, it's funny, Chopsticks has been at the top of Rap Caviar like two weeks leading up to the album. It's still on the playlist now. Man, Chopsticks is one of those songs where Interscope, it just pays for Spotify for that top placement. It's mm-hmm. like there's no curation going into Rap Caviar because they're just taking that big four label money where big three label money and like if they were curating, they're like, Chopsticks is not a song we should be elevating, but Interscope wants us to make it big, so we'll take the money and do it so i was kind of just disappointed that chop six was getting such a push just because i don't think it's a good song that kind of leads into i think my one issue with the album was there's three specific hooks that are just lazy man 
And one of them is chopsticks, dot, 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 chopsticks, yeah, right? not great. I got the water, I got the water, uh, which I like that song, but that's still, or uh, the very first song, Gang Gang, a song I like, I like Hughes' verses, but the, the hook of whoop, clean, dope boy, 10 times in a row, yeah, kind of boring. But overall, I, I liked it. I almost wonder, kind of thinking it out and, fl- and seeing the way that Hughes' albums have been going recently, if he's on like a one for them one for me type type deal where like he's like this is gonna be the album that's for the label and then i get to do my like art art tour project so to speak art, art tour. interesting maybe i mean just a just a thought anyways i think we would definitely recommend this this album and we already added 5200 to the playlist so check that and out juice. and num num juice so check that out we're moving on to kevin abstract kevin abstracts arizona baby his second album uh follow-up to I guess not really follow up, but a second album after American Boy French came out in 2016. Obviously, we talked about Brockhampton last year with Iridescence, and Kevin is the leader of Brockhampton. I mean, we, we talked about the EP too that came out, a couple of single or a couple of uh, songs off that, and they dropped three more songs, and then we got the full thing. I don't know if I want to spoil it too much, but I really, really like this album. Probably have listened to it like three or four times just since it Ooh. dropped on friday once it ends i just really want to run it back so before we get too far into it how did you feel about arizona baby just like your general thoughts yeah so i really i really liked it kind of my thoughts when we talked about the first three tracks and we thought this was a series of eps and not just a rapid fire single of sorts up to the album i think arizona baby is a great showcase for kevin abstract's talent as a solo as artist in general and kind of why he's an impressive and should be well uh, followed face for the alternative not super mainstream side of rap today and you know he also incorporates a lot of other genres and i think you get a lot of that on this album so it kind of follows the lineage of american boyfriend i guess you could say and uh you know kevin kind of plays like as a side character on the broadcast and albums more likely than not or what do you expect when there's that many members mm-hmm. But him having this come out post all the Brockhampton stuff, post Iridescence as well, I think really shows that, yeah, he, he still knows exactly what he's about. And it's really exciting. But what'd you like about it so much? I mean, we got Jack Antonoff helping out with this album. There's some push on this from RCA. Yeah, not only helping out, but producing the whole thing. And I, I think his touch is actually felt throughout. Because when when I was thinking back to it, I was like, what, what does this album remind me of? And it reminds me of lord actually her last album melodrama not necessarily in terms of like content because obviously they're completely different people talking about completely different things some similarities but not much i think just the way that it's structured where some songs really flow together very well and feel very cohesive almost like two parts of one whole and then it can kind of cut and it's then told something totally different you mentioned he pulls from a lot of genres i would almost call this like a genreless album because i don't think that this really fits mm-hmm. into like hip-hop or rap straight like like american problem almost sounds kind of like show tune and and like the beginning of it and then it kind of gets into like a more classic hip-hop sound by the end he just pulls from so many different areas and puts so many different sounds into this that on top of talking about some real shit like talking about his experience as a gay man in america in the south specifically oh yeah like peach and, and georgia are two specific songs to that and then just talking about like wanting to be famous wanting to be this hip-hop star and, and everything that comes from from that and not trying not to lose himself i thought there's just a lot of meaning behind this and it felt very true to who it seems like he is as a person and i thought that it shone through really well and i think antonoff really brought out the best of him that's what i liked most about it and just the overall like there's not really a bad song on here i didn't find myself really skipping over much i came back to a couple more than others but did you like this album as much as i did i guess not the get the ghetto baby songs which is the 
second group of three tracks he released last or two weeks ago now corpus christi baby boy and mississippi i didn't revisit those as much leading up to the full release despite the fact that i think baby boy is a really well made song ryan Beatty on that hook mm-hmm. that was a snippet that was famous on the brockhampton youtube channel and people were wondering if we we're ever going to get that in a full song sure enough we did they kind of pushed for that video to get viral it made the youtube trending chart that day but when he, when he goes like honestly like when he goes just kind of more pop more r&b i don't know if it stands out quite as much to me but the songs are still really well made so it's really hard to take much away from them once he released the last few joints and again we, we talked a lot about big wheels joyride and georgia on the ep review so check that out for more of our thoughts on those songs but once he got to these other songs i heard peach was the yeah. lead up for the last bunch and i was like no not big wheels that's for sure but man this song is really impressive and he tweeted about wanting to get dominic fike on this album in some way and sure enough he did and dominic fike if you don't know is really blowing up right now this song three nights which blew up on beats one last year that song's what hundreds of millions on spotify already he had label bidding war he's gonna be a huge star and having him on that hook i think is actually a really awesome look but also we get a uh, bareface and joba from brockhampton yep into the back half of that song. I think that song rules. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned, having him once again dive into his personal struggles or journey growing up in life, you know, literally speaking, on Use Me, American Problem, all those songs. There's a lot here, man. It's really great. Yeah, I really like it. And I'm just really happy he's getting a lot of love because I really want Kevin to keep this going because i think he's just a really impressive and unique artist uh, i agree with pretty much everything you said i think kind of where i'm going with is this might be my album of the year at the moment oh i'm guessing that'll probably be dethroned just next week because i'm really enjoying these vampire weekend singles that have come uh, out boo. but we definitely have gotten some really good music this year and we've reviewed a lot of it so again go back to our youtube page you can find all of our breakouts there and hit that subscribe button while you're at it all right dave you ready game of thrones time the Long Night, The Battle of Winterfell. We're, we're halfway through the last season. Only three more episodes left. And th- this was kind of the one people were looking forward to the most, you know. It's interesting because we've been aware of the, the White Walkers, or at least aware that there's some power out there since the first episode. Pretty much like the, one of the first moments. of. It's literally the first scene. <laughs> I mean, this has been building to this moment, and the White Walkers have arrived. Winter has fallen at Winterfell. And did this battle, did this episode live up to all the hype? This is the longest battle ever recorded for, you know, it's longer than Helm's Deep was like what they were pitching out there. Longest for TV by a wide margin costs, I think, $15 million. They said it took almost two months to shoot. All that checks out when you watch it. It was not disappointing for me. I love the episode. Depends who you ask, though, (laughs) which is funny. It's not what I expected a lot of the discourse to be about a day later. But here we are. I really enjoyed it for tons of reasons. But what about you? What'd you think? I really enjoyed it. I, I was going to say, I'm asking you. So I want to hear, what did you like about it? What what made this, would you call it a classic Game of Thrones episode? I don't know if I would see that. That's the thing, because Miguel Sapochnik directed this, and he's famous amongst the Thrones community for doing Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, The Gift, Winds of Winter. Two of the biggest battles, now three of the biggest battles, as well as the season six finale, which, you know, Cersei blows up the Sept and all that. So he's really good at cinematic action on tv for this show fitting the tone all that you know honestly i think there's definitely classic moments it's funny because i don't know how much of this people are gonna like watch the youtube clips of the way they do with like hard home or even the more dramatic scenes like the stuff in baylor red wedding stuff or mountain viper i don't know if this 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 cracks that quite that high but the way it ends definitely does interesting yeah you know i i hadn't really 
tried to rank it right away. But yeah, I, I guess I guess I would say no. Maybe not the not the highest. It's very close though. Mm-hmm. It's very close. I think it's probably like top three for battles. I put Hard Home ahead of it still. But, you know, I think I like this more than The Battle of the Bastards upon rewatching that recently. Definitely higher than Blackwater for you. Yeah, and that's another one that was really impressive at the time and still works totally fine. But mm-hmm. what we've seen since, I think, has definitely trumped it. Yeah, I wouldn't say that this is a classic Game of Thrones episode. It's definitely the the biggest spectacle they've ever had, the most impressive, I think, episode they've ever had, only because they were tying so many different threads together throughout and had to give right. each character amount of time that felt earned and appropriate, but also kind of kept it moving throughout. I, I agree. I think Hard Home is still the best battle that they ever shot, just in terms of like pure suspense and like being overwhelmed by like how how scary it was. Like it really felt like you were trying to get away from, from these things. I felt like I was suffocating throughout this episode a lot of the time though, which I think speaks to two things. One, it's an episode where uh, one of the main critiques has been, oh, it was too dark. You know, you couldn't really see what was going on. <laughs> the episode's name is The Longest Night or The Long Night. The Long Night. The titular Long Night. It's going to be nighttime. And this is a time where electricity is not invented. Fire bar. So, <laughs> so it's not going to be that well lit. But even beyond that, I think it's supposed to feel overwhelming. I mean, the first uh, you see Melisandre come out. Lights the Dothraki, swords on fire, and Jorah leads a, this insane charge into the army of the dead. And as they get close, all you basically see, it looked just like a monster as they ran into the horde. Because it was just like, holy crap. And you just see like the lights go out slowly, which is a really cool shot. But that pretty much set the tone, like, this is going to be overwhelming. Because like, there's an overwhelming number of soldiers, or, you know, zombies that they have to, to kill you. The whites are very much outnumbering them, so it's going to oh, yeah. feel close and hectic. So if you didn't have that feeling and if you didn't feel like chaos, they weren't really doing service to what the battle was supposed to feel like. So I think they achieved that there. But second, this was maybe one of the most, I think, beautifully shot episodes. Like There are images I can clearly remember that I thought were just were really well done. What did you think about just like the, the visual aspect of the episode? Yeah, it's so funny. People are like, man you got to light this better. I'm like, you're telling Miguel Sapochnik how to fucking light action from your couch? Really? That's what we're doing here? Yeah. That, that's, this, is, this is the hill? And, and the thing is, I didn't have a problem keeping checking any action. I turned my lights off. That was good enough. And I have a 1080p Vizio from 2014, 32 inches. I'm not even watching on a big-ass TV. It was interesting because if you were watching this through cable, that's only going to be 1080i. If you're watching on HBO Go, that only gives you like half the bit rate that... Amazon Prime would give you if you connected HBO through that. So it's funny, I think, between maybe a little bit of a server load on HBO's end, but just some weird artifacting, which, again, is something that can pop up most in dark scenes. It popped up, and it was not an issue with the with the scenes. It was an issue with the delivery method. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of just an annoying gripe to hold against the episode because it's like if someone was being really bad in the Avengers Endgame theater and it ruined your experience you know it didn't the movie didn't do that someone right. next to you did so i mean blame your tv blame your internet connection blame order media i guess <laughs> if this really was an issue for you but yeah i thought it looked really great and I, I think it sets the tone early as you mentioned with melisandre lighting all the 
the Swords of Malasad are coming back early into the fold. Yep. As soon as they're, we, we see the figure, I'm like, I know exactly who that is. <laughs> who else could it be? Initially, though, I was like, hmm, is this like an envoy of the of, of the Night King? I know. Similar to how like uh, Sauron sends that uh, that dude to speak for him in front of the Black Gate in Return of the King. And then when they do that charge, I'm like, oh, this is like when Faramir has to charge after us. Gilly, I think it's his ass fucking kick because it was a stupid plan. Exactly what we just saw, except yep. it was all at nighttime and the choice to have the flames there signify what you're seeing and you can tell right away it's not going to go well. Really smart. Yep. <laughs> Funny that they have Ghost in there and you actually see Ghost le- uh, taking uh, leaps and bounds. They're like, oh, Ghost is in action. They paid for this for a little for a second. Then he goes away, but he survives as we see in the final scenes. <laughs> but yeah, I think it looked really cool. I thought the dragon fighting yes. when the dragons are fighting. That's an awesome callback to the Dance with Dragons, which is Game of Thrones prehistory. Book fans know all about that, especially when they're above the clouds and we see like the beautiful sky above the clouds and it looks really cool, like those blues. But that was fucking great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything really with Viserion, I think, was awesome when he was tearing up Winterfell at the end and almost kills Jon, shooting ice shit everywhere, uh, ice fire everywhere. Looked really great. So yeah. yeah, I was a big fan of everything visually, everything technical. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about when they take Rhaegal and Drogon out when the the army of the dead is first attacking and they're just totally overwhelmed they just started like blowing fire just like right through the, the crowds it was so visually like amazing to see like the scale of everything and then see these huge yep. dragons just kicking ass so definitely was awesome i have a lot of issues with the way that danny and john uh use their dragons throughout i thought a lot of, a lot of problems with that but otherwise i i really like dragons. yeah i think we i think we know now that danny is a high usage low per player <laughs> And John just has like a low battle IQ. Yeah. It seems like like he just has that natural God given talent that he can succeed on the battlefield. But he really needs that that coach or that that wingman in this case Arya to 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 win to win the game. It seems yeah. like bad instincts by John. But it's in character. We've yeah. seen this before. Yeah, and you know, and you know also the Night King. So I, I think we're referring to when John jumps off Rhaegal and tries to go fight the Night King in the battlefield and has to be saved by Danny after the Night King raises all the dead and basically just surrounds John. Yeah. That I mean it was great, but I was also like, come on, bro, square up. Like you gotta you gotta show John Snow what's what. Especially because he just stares at him. Every time they see each other, they just, they just stare at each other. It's like this weird like what's actually going on mm-hmm. there? Nothing. I think that was the point. Well and, Night King don't care. Yeah, and I guess we, we can probably get to that now to kind of jump to the end of the episode a little bit. Obviously, if you've watched, you know, Arya, LeBron James blocks the shot off the backboard, saves Winterfell and humanity in general with an amazing, I don't, I don't even know how she got this running start or where she was jumping from, but she, you know, Night King comes around, catches her. She does the, the Ray or the Arya drop the dagger, stab in the stomach yep. move, and the White Walkers are, are dead. Winter, I guess, is now over. I don't know if that's true i guess but regardless did did you like that ending did that feel a satisfying ending to the white walkers to you or were you kind of bummed like ah that's it this is a whole problem that happens with shows that are so have such a fanatical following like game of thrones we do this with a lot of stuff star wars most recently harry potter guess marvel and dc to a less little lesser extent people care so much and are so invested that they get so many ideas in their head about what they want to see or what they want, where they want the story to go, all of this. Reddit culture, right? In some instances, it's great. It's literally the only thing that keeps people watching Westworld, for example. Shots at Westworld. I mean, I'll always take shots at that (laughs) show. When something like Game of Thrones can confidently tell its own story, 
but it maybe takes it in a way you didn't want. It can leave people longing. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think that's a that's a problem with nothing but the audience setting their own expectations. I think the thing with this instance of the Night King approaching Bran is people are like, what the fuck's going to happen? Is the Night King going to take a knee? Are we going to find out their connection? Is there more going on in the Three-Eyed Raven and the Night King? And, you know, we had some exposition from Bran last, last week about the role of the Night King and the Three-Eyed Ravens of old. You know, what's going on? What's going to happen? And I think it turns out that the show ultimately treats the Night King and the White Walkers exactly the way it always has. That's ultimately a one-dimensional evil threat. Whether that changes in the books, I expect it would, but we probably will never know because George R. R. Martin does not have three more books in him. Yeah. And I've read the books, so I'm going to say that. He's not not finishing it, so we're never going to get the ending. So people throwing out, well, it's not going to end that way in the books, are kind of missing the point because there is no other ending. We're not getting it. (laughs) If you want to get some uh, George R. R. Martin culture, though, he's definitely got some thoughts on the Giants draft and probably the Jets as well since he's a fan of both. I don't know how, but... Uh, you, you can follow those uh, those takes. He'll definitely get those out there. On, on his live journal or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. And I, to be honest, I was a little disappointed because I feel like they alluded to all these little tidbits that there was definitely more to the backstory of the Night King um, and to the White Walkers and just their history and what they wanted. And in a way, it's almost kind of like it's almost kind of like every or most superhero villains where really they just want to destroy everything. And that, that's okay if, if that's what the show really intended it to be. But it just felt like they had more intention at the beginning. And the show almost along the way was like, I don't know if we have time for this. Or I don't know if, if we want to flesh this part out because maybe it's too confusing. Or it's mm-hmm. just too much to show for the show. The books can expand on that all they want. But definitely feels a little disappointing to me. But that doesn't take away from the fact that I still think this is an excellent episode. I, I do have questions and probably unanswerable ones. Like why the Night King was the one that had to kill Bran. You have millions or seems like thousands of hmm. zombies that could have just killed him right there why did the night king have to kill him i mean it seems like he's always wanted to be the one right right like this happened in the door when they break through after night king allow- uh, Bran allows night king to touch him and changes that uh that barrier goes away right yep uh the white walkers all wait around uh the old red raven max von Sydow for the night king to show up so the night king can do the deed yeah there's a lot that we don't understand how that works but and I think the show the show has never really fully leaned into like the prophecy angle of the story in the books. There's a lot of them, and most of them are acknowledged on the show, but they're not woven in in such a way that they're ever on the mind of most viewers. Right. And Azor Ahai, Prince of Promise, Prince of Promise, the Lord of Light angle. Then we have there's so many of them, Valencar right? Valencar, and which has never well, the Valencar is different, but th- there's a lot of them. But the thing is, they never really get um. Stein that mounts the world, Dothraki. He's a lot of them. They never really get any kind of payoff. And frankly, in the show, the only one who's really driving any of that is Melisandre. And I actually really liked how they used Melisandre in this episode and have her finally come back to Westeros and die, as she said she would. We already knew she was using a glimmer to be make herself look younger than she actually is. But she got the prophecy wrong the whole time. Really, she thought it was Stannis. Mm-hmm. And then once Stannis went down, she's like, oh, it's actually about John." And now people are like, well, but if John didn't kill the Night King, it was Arya. Is Arya Zora High? No, it's like, actually, as far as the show's concerned, no one was. Melisandre was wrong. Right. And I think that's okay. I know maybe it'll be different in the books if we ever get there. But the show never really cared too much about that. And that was never a negative about the show, which is something that just didn't flesh out. 
So I didn't really didn't really bother me. But I, I think you're right, and I, again, not a problem for me or you. It seems like, but some people, it, it, it clearly is. The Night King and the White Walker threat did just feel like it had an abrupt end because we kind of were looking for something more out of the connection with Bran and motivation. But as I said before, we never had really any reason to believe there was actually any other tangible motivation. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been there. And yes, having Bran mentioned last week about how they're just kind of trying to erase the human history, the never-ending darkness, all that. Maybe it would be nice if we kind of got that a little earlier, just to kind of think about it more. But ultimately, I think it, it, it's effective at the end of the day. Definitely effective, and I I think more than anything, it's an equalizing you know thing because I think Danny would have marched in there and absolutely wiped the floor with Cersei, and you know they're obviously on to take the Iron Throne now. They have the two dragons still. No, Rhaegal probably is a little messed up. And Drogon, yeah, and and Drogon too. But Rhaegal was the one that Danny was riding when the White Walkers were like. Classic. No, Danny's on Drogon. Rhaegal oh, was the one that got fucked up by Viserys. Rhaegal got fucked up by Viserys. Yeah in the fight so they both took some licks and what what's left of their armies probably nothing except every main every character with a plot left uh made it out of this battle we assume almost none probably no dothraki most of the unsullied died as well besides gray worm i'm sure there's maybe a few left some northmen left all the ironborn with theon are dead it's not that many and that that, i think that's a a question talk about next episode but it's funny, like people, oh, the, the Night King there, he was vanquished so quickly and, and, and it ended so abruptly. I'm like, let's analyze what we watched. They won. It was over. Right. They did it. The Night King, Night King won. And then Arya happens. Yeah. And Arya, as we said, has been taken over the internet, memed to death, <laughs> deservedly so. Yeah. And I really love it because this is honestly the best arc they could have done. Jon Snow, as we mentioned, has never had any genius on the battlefield the way Rob Stark did. Right, John has just kind of gotten lucky and failed to achieve his death wish that he clearly has. And Danny has never been a commander on the field; she's been behind the back. So having expecting one of them to do it, I'm sure they could have pulled it off, especially John. But having Arya do it, who they've literally dedicated entire seasons of the show for her journey, becoming a stone cold killer and a stealthy assassin, to see people be like, "How did Arya get there in time? How'd you get by all these whites?" I'm like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" If there's anything that was ever established on this show, it was that Arya could have pulled this off right and i think it's the best end of her arc narrative arc and such such great payoff that well i didn't see it coming i'm still actually really thrilled about it because i honestly i think it was the most logical thing they could have done yeah i mean Arya is just the greatest to ever do it and she also got two of two of the best callback lines in this episode not only did she get the uh sticking with the pointy end when she gave the dagger mm-hmm. to sansa but then she got the, the during the pep talk with melisandre what do we say to the god of death? Not today. And then she takes off running and uh, just ran right into uh, the Night King doing the damn thing. But the thing is, like, every scene with her was probably my, my favorite scenes throughout this episode. When she's first fighting with that staff and just kicking ass oh, up there. Badass. Amazing. And then, like, she's, you know, kind of starting to get overtaken. She's, like, jumping off roofs, just trying to survive. Is in that library, which is, like... Uh, I think the uh, the ringers talk to the thrones said alien, which I think is a great uh, a great comparison. It's just like that, like feeling. It's like in Zelda when you're trying to avoid the guards in Ocarina of Time, and like you have to like walk mm-hmm. behind them and not oh, yeah. get caught. Such a just such a tense uh, situation. And then that running and the hound and Barrack saving her. The whole like every scene with her was just so fantastically done and well thought out. Her her character arc, you know, compared to John, is really interesting because. Arya always wanted to be what she's become, and Jon has reluctantly been 
pushed into what he's become. And I think it's just a really cool comparison to see their journeys and how the, the show has taken them from where they started to where they are. It, it really speaks to how well thought out George R. R. Martin had these characters when he first started writing them and how the show, I think, has done a really good job of servicing them in a realistic way, you know, in, in terms of the fantasy show realism. Want to talk about the deaths real quick? Because we didn't, we didn't get as many as we thought. Body count for the characters we care about, maybe six. Ed, Liana, Mormont, Jorah, Beric, Theon. I think I'm missing one there. Viserion, Night King, Melisandre. Yeah, I guess Night King. Melisandre, yeah. So I guess maybe we got like eight deaths, nine deaths we cared about. We expected a lot more. You know, Brienne made it out. People thought she was done for. Grey Worm, I mean, I, I had him buried last week. So I, I'm, he's sure. unbelievable. He's Podrick. Still, Podrick, yeah. These are also the only people that survived. Torment. That's a big one. Yeah, Torment. I didn't see him at the end. I'm, I'm sure he's alive. Oh, he but he's there. Ghost somehow just ran into all the, the dead and just survived he's fast it's fine <laughs> where'd he go <laughs> just again he just ghost has back. always been around these past two seasons <laughs> he's just just out of view yeah <laughs> you can't quite see him <laughs> i just want, want them to throw some barks in there and we're just like where is he but like he's not actually in the frame that would, that would make it a little more realistic yeah so what do you think about the last sam lived too yes see I'm, I'm thinking about it i'm like that's another thing it's like oh well the night king he didn't really kill anyone i cared about and i'm like well, think about it. Like he didn't care about Grey Worm any more than he cared about Jorah or Beric. Uh, same. I mean, Jorah you've been with for a while. Beric, I'd put on the same level. That's what. I'm, but that's what I'm saying. It's like Grey Worm doesn't elevate us here. No. Podrick wouldn't either. I guess you're asking for Sam or Brienne because we know John and Danny aren't dying here. We're pretty confident Sansa and Tyrion won't, and we know Jamie's gonna probably die later revolving cersei mm-hmm. and the hound is going to die with or be around for colgain bowl so there's just not as many on the table like there's just some inherent plot armor going in so i never really had the expectation i did expect i thought brienne and again this is just something i just kind of put in my head long enough that i just expect to get to happen brienne and jamie brienne maybe saving jamie because he's not quite the fighter he used to be and that motivating jamie go after cersei because cersei didn't help send help right yep didn't go down that way. That's okay. I guess Torment. I guess people do really like Torment. Sam. I mean, I don't know. I just I don't know what you wanted. I guess Arya was in play. I did pick her to die in my pool. Not necessarily thought it would be now, though. And at the end, it's like, oh, wait, shit. This is really going to kill Arya? This would have been fucking, fucking brutal. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it was good enough for me. Again, the Night King won until he did it. Like, it was there. It was over. So I, I'm not that worried about it. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't really care either way, honestly. If we get more of our favorite characters, like there's, that's not a bad thing. More more are coming, too. Like It's it's not over. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think Brienne isn't going to make it out. I think her death would be what probably propels Jamie against Cersei. I imagine her death probably comes at Cersei's hand or something like that. I think the, the deaths that happened were appropriate. Lyanna got her, uh, got to kill Zombie 1-1. I mean, it, it looked like him. I don't know. I imagine only only because one one died. Yeah, he died right at Winterfell. I assume they burned him. Yeah, I assume so. But another giant. That was cool to see a zombie yeah. giant because we knew he had them. That, that was cool. And honestly, Liana Mormont. They only wanted her to be in the show for that one scene where John and Sansa or they recruit Bear Island two seasons ago. But she was such an impressive actress that they kept her around. So that's kind of really cool to see her elevated now to have this really terrible but also kind of a satisfying end for such a ferocious little character. That, that was great. I thought Liana Mormont was the biggest surprise probably of the show and the one that we liked the most. Theon dying. What did you think of his ending and just his, his 
arc in general. That was exactly what I expected to happen. He'd eventually die. I, and to be honest, I didn't expect the Night King to, himself to kill Dion. That was cool, I guess. And make it um, look easy. Of course. But it, him and the Ironborn held their own for a while. And I yeah. think that's cool because like, they're supposed to be tough-ass motherfuckers, Dion notwithstanding. So that was cool that they actually pulled it off for a little bit. You know, it's because again, like the show has the godswood kind of adjacent to Winterfell rather than being kind of inside Winterfell. So the geography of it, it's kind of funny because like they didn't really go after the godswood for some time, as you could see. The they were just focused on fighting the main, mm-hmm. the main uh, fighters. But yeah, no, I think that that was good for Theon. I know, you know, a lot of people I think have actually come around on Theon as a character and have as an arc. I do think it's an effective arc. It just depends if you actually got invested in him because the show kind of just sidelined him as a character for a while. Like, I mean, he has a whole season where his whole thing is just being tortured by Ramsay. You know, it's kind of a tough hang sometimes. Yeah. But I, I liked how they treated him. Yeah, I think he's very impressive as a character. Just the fact that he went from being... Very well acted. Yeah, definitely very well acted. And he just was this piece of shit <laughs> for like a lot of the middle seasons and then became reek and people were just like man you really are just like the worst at this point especially because he had so many chances to redeem himself and just never did and finally gets that redemption here at the end which uh, the fact that you took this character that seemed irredeemable and was able to do that for him was great we didn't really mention the crypts too much the crypts were not as safe as people expected but still pretty safe i have to say if they had put like two soldiers down there i feel like they would have been okay you know, like some some bodyguards or some people that could have used a sword. One dragon glass dagger, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would have been fine. Yeah, a lot of Sansa, Tyrion stuff, which is very interesting. I'm sure we'll I be like that. talking about. Yeah, but I like that a lot. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I, I couldn't tell if it was romantic or just like I care about you. No, I think it was. I, I don't think romantic, but more the second. It, it was platonic death pact, bro. Yeah. Like, all right, here we go. Let's get it. Let's get get it. Mm-hmm. Let's hopefully not die. That's what <laughs> that's what that was. But yeah, I, th- I think there's there's a, some very interesting storylines still for the show, and obviously Cersei looking very happy in the previews for next week. So it's gonna be very interesting to see how this plays out. Do you think they go back to Danny's home? You know, uh, was it Dragonstone? Dragonstone. There's really no incentive to go there unless that's like their their loading area for the fight. But I think it's gotta be. Yeah, I mean, we'll find out next week how much of their army is l- truly left, and there really isn't anywhere to go for more. One thing I, I've just I've just kind of theorized on my own is I've actually seen it out there as well. But was Bran when he warged into the Ravens kind of early on? Was he going for Mira Reed and Halvand? Are they going to come back? Hmm. The Kranigman? I think ultimately that purpose would be for Halvand to confirm the account that John is truly a Targaryen, as we know. Yada yada. I am curious what was going on with with Bran there with the warging. It seems like something was, but yeah, no, I mean. It really depends where they're going to have this fight. I think Cersei's probably just going to have the Golden Company just and Euron just hang out in King's Landing and say, bitch, come get us. We're fortified. And we sure as hell know you ain't fortified up there. Yeah. So that's kind of what I expect. We'll see if uh, if Dario is in the company. Uh, it'll definitely be late in the game for him to show his face again. Wouldn't be surprised. Not, not a big deal if he's not there, though. Yeah. No, I think th- what's really cool is, you know, whether you thought it was abrupt or not, whether you thought it was anticlimactic or not. The Long Night threat is gone. The White Walkers are are gone. And now we're back to the best aspect of Game of Thrones as a television show. The palace intrigue, the Mm -hmm. people talking in rooms, the politics, the backstabbing, the quest for the throne itself. And that's way more exciting to me. And I'm happy we get three more episodes dedicated to this. And also, Miguel Sopochnik will be back in two weeks to direct. There's going to be another big fight. Going to be epic. Game of Thrones, final word on it. It's good. If you haven't watched it yet, you should. 
Anyways. Don't know why you're <laughs> We're moving on to Avengers Endgame. We got the Russo brothers dropping their second installment follow-up to Infinity War, Avengers Endgame, sitting at, I think, a too low 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Dave, this movie has grossed $1.2 billion in its opening weekend. 1.22 at that update. Crazy. I think people like this film. People have at least been going to see it, it seems. So yeah, what's your non-spoiler take for people that might just be like, ah, should I go see this and have stumbled onto this breakout? <laughs> what's your non-spoiler take before we jump into it? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I, I think Avengers Endgame is very uh, effective and satisfying, especially for long-term fans of the MCU. I think it, it achieves what it needed to do. It, it delivers on the promise that Infinity War laid out. And yeah, it has a lot of really great callbacks to past MCU stuff, um, much more heavy handed or, or obviously than I expected. We'll get into that. But yeah, I mean, for a movie that there's really no precedent for weaving, truly attempting to weave this much, these many other movies narratives into it and serving this many characters. And again, we'll get into that as well. I, I was impressed with, with how successful it is. It's not without its issues, and we'll talk about that. But it's really impressive as far as blockbuster team-up superhero movie with actual legitimate emotional stakes goes. So yeah, I liked it. What about you? I have not had an emotional experience at a movie theater. Like I have to, like I did to this movie, and I was oh, wow. kind of surprised by that. I, I, I did think there were going to be probably moments where I like teared up, but like it really hit me in the feels, and I think it... It was a couple of things. One, I think they really played into some some themes that probably just personally touched me. But I think like there's a lot of family, a lot of parent, uh, you know, child type type things in here, which are really touching. But also just seeing, I think, the ending to this phase into this this through line, these movies that really you and I have grown up with. I mean, what Iron Man came out our junior senior year of high school. Is that 2008 2008 so my my junior year so it must have been your sophomore year of high school so i mean we really have gone from being high schoolers to you know mid-20s adults uh throughout this this run so i think 22 movies yeah crazy that there's there's been this much i think that was probably yeah, i think they landed landed the ship really well with this i think they gave uh appropriate send-offs to all the characters that got their send-offs and i think they also kind of uh reshuffled the deck so to speak and and identified the core moving forward which is exactly what we kind of said they needed to do for this you know give the old the ogs their their proper send-off in a uh, a fan servicey way that didn't feel overly fan servicey i think and also kind of set up where are we going next yeah so if, if you are watching this video we're gonna get into spoilers there's really no way to talk about this movie without spoiling it so just go see it you're probably one of like five people that you know that haven't seen it at this point uh so i'd recommend just going and doing that so you can talk to them about it all right i don't know what the <laughs> best way to talk about this is maybe just kind of going piece by piece through the movie it really starts off with hawkeye and he's he has i mean he was absent in infinity war you catch him at home with his family they go through the snap very uh leftovers ish where he turns around everybody's just gone and then he turns can i interject real quick on yeah. this in my theater and I think this is a very well well made scene, very effective setting and up reestablishing where we are directly in the story. Yep. Similar to how the Ant Man two credit credits uh, scene goes. There are people in my theater that like fucking gasped in shock 
<laughs> when Linda Cardellini and crew disappeared. Really? <laughs> what What did you expect was going to happen? I and I was it. seeing it on fucking Thursday night. <laughs> I was supposed to be there with the hardcores. People were like, whoa. They were like shocked or like, or sad. I'm like, what the fuck do you think you're about to watch? Come on. It's really well done, but why are you surprised? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That That's actually just like baffling to me. Anyways. Yeah. I, I think that did a really good job of reestablishing where we're at, what the stakes are. Clint goes on to be Ronin. We'll kind of get back into that, but basically they go back and the Avengers, it's five days after the snap. They basically go, they find out that there was this gamma energy somewhere in the universe. Rocket identifies it and they all go and they attack thanos who's with captain marvel in, in the fold yeah now. and man thanos just trying to eat these spiky fruits and enjoy his life and gets beheaded by thor <laughs> it's like just murky for that went for the head but basically he had destroyed the infinity stones so they weren't able to undo the snap and he says i am inevitable right jump five years later world trying to move on captain america is now leading aa meetings basically or like you know, snap anonymous grief team. counselor yeah i guess and the first the first mvp comes about and it's that rat who gets ant-man out of the qu- quantum realms just steps over some buttons restarts ant-man he comes flying out finds out he's been in the quantum realm for five years about right. like five hours to him and yeah and he lets them know hey we might be able to go back in time figure this out so they get professor hulk who uh banner's now been able to merge himself with hulk so he's one omniscient in control being natasha black widow is really at the head of everything getting everybody back together they start to figure out this time travel stuff tony is out of the fold because he blames cap really but just wanted to go have his own life and it feels a lot of guilt about everything they get him back in the fold now he has a daughter he figured out the time travel stuff i mean kind of just going kind of very broad over this because it's there's a lot of plot here yeah well i think that that whole the whole setup really the second piece of action where they all go and kill thanos i think that was largely unexpected that they were going to initially fail he destroys the stones it's done it's over and i just didn't expect and obviously we can't weigh into this in a second but i didn't expect them to immediately uh, lean into time travel right away because it clearly was the only path to success right you know so that, that kind of kind of surprised me that, that that would be the case you you know everyone just kind of assumed they would go just go after thanos and fight him but no he gets rid of the stones you know it's just a little uh, it was just a little cool little zag a curveball you know mm-hmm. um and the, the lead up after that once we see like what's going on and having nat just kind of struggling to keep it together hawkeye is just off kilt yeah. killing yakuza um hulk as you mentioned being one in the same it's a lot of cool choice i think ultimately this movie serves as the best uh black widow movie thus far oh definitely we're getting one later the best hawkeye movie again <laughs> hawkeye has barely been in the movies and his i think his most screen time was in the first one when he's like a zombie loki bad guy yeah um and also Kind of like I don't know, like the best, the best roadie movie, the best Nat- Nebula movie. They just they give a lot of time to mm. these side characters, especially the OGs, and that, that that required a lot of balls. That was definitely a choice, and the process you're giving the best to them. But I think it also, at least for me, I mean, the narrative kind of ebbs and flows depending on who, what characters we're spending time with. What did you feel about having Hulk being one and the same up until he meets uh, Ancient One when they start? going back in time i mean because having banner just be another another smart guy 
I mean, it was cool. It was really fun. I think the selfie scene in the mm-hmm. diner yep. was great. I, was, I loved it. But having him just be in control, I just don't know if that's as makes Hulk as interesting when he's just playing second fiddle at Tony as a smart smart thinker, you know? I, I, like Ragnarok, I thought, was the best Hulk we've got. I wouldn't say this is the best Hulk movie. I think Ragnarok's the best Hulk movie because you get both sides of Banner. What do you think? I, I really actually liked it because I... Um... I think in Infinity War, Banner was probably the part I liked the least. You know, Hulk kind of gets his ass kicked by Thanos right in the beginning, and then it's just Banner. Um, and yeah, exactly. I, I I kind of hated how they, you know, he couldn't figure out a way to get Hulk to come back out. And I liked that they merged him just because I think people want to see Hulk, but I liked seeing an in-control Hulk throughout the movie. To kind of talk about your point where these characters are getting their shine, they did a really good job of, like, shifting the movie gradually. You know, it starts off with like Cap and and uh, Iron Man having their their fight, or I guess Iron Man just yelling at Captain America and then deciding I'm not I'm not a part of this anymore. I'm out. But then it really shifts to being about these uh, ancillary characters, and I think that that's a really smart move because it lets them have their shine. But then by the end, it shifts back to the ones that you want to see, um, and then it at the very very end, obviously it's wrapping up for the others, but it really that the final battle that we'll get to brings in the next crew. And I think it does, it kind of like hands the baton off in a way throughout the movie in a really uh, appropriate way that made a lot of narrative sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, and around this time we get to, we, we see what's going on with Thor mm-hmm. and having new Asgard be settled. I think, I think we knew about that at the end of Ragnarok, that, but yes, going there and seeing Valkyrie right away. Mm-hmm. Great. Love Tess Thompson. She comes back later. But seeing that Thor has let himself go, yeah. and he's just hanging out with Korg and me, great like, bit, hilarious. I think having Thor, that is Hemsworth is is basically playing a whole new character now. This is basically movie three of his being funny Thor, mm-hmm. right? Ragnarok, Infinity War, now Endgame, and I just really like. I think Hemsworth's performance is just so much better. Thor's just way more fun. Now, not to jump ahead, but they again had a lot of balls to have us revisit Thor the Dark World yeah. and explore one last time Thor's relationship with his mom, a character that was super undercooked mm-hmm. in the two Thor movies and before she dies in Dark World. So I thought that was that was definitely ballsy. But overall, I really like Thor because, again, I just, I just love this new campy, funny Thor. It's just better. It just works better. It's, it, it's the better. He's in the better movies than the other ones, so... I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I think it was really funny. Like, there's a lot of cool gags, like the Fortnite thing, and him just not being kind of a functioning alcoholic. Like it was great. Well, and especially because Thor is a superhero. You know, he doesn't have that 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 sharp wit of uh, Tony Stark, which allows him to be serious, but also like put these like moments of levity in. So you kind of have to make him a bit of a doofus a little bit. Um, but I think that plays really well also into Hemsworth's strengths as this character. And I, I just, uh, I, I think he, over the last couple movies, has just been the biggest re- re- revelation and definitely going to be a building block, seems like, for Guardians uh, moving forward. So we'll probably talk about that a little bit more at the end. Um, I just want to jump back into the plot and kind of get into this. So, you know, Paul Rudd, I, I thought, was really, really great as Ant-Man in this. And I think he brings a lot of levity to that first hour or so, um, which is really needed because you, like you mentioned, we're doing a lot of leftover shit. They, they figure out the time travel. There's a great scene where Paul Rudd's going back and forth uh, with Banner and <laughs> he's an old man, then a baby. 
uh, <laughs> uh just some really good yeah really 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 effective scene stark comes they figure out the time travel and then they decide to go back in time and steal the infinity stones before thanos gets them so they go back to the battle of new york which people were calling out there were some leaked set photos and people kind of knew something was going to be coming because uh, of the costumes right i think was what gave it away the yeah costumes and uh i thought that that was a really awesome choice pulled in a couple of different things i think kind of giving us this behind the scenes of like what was going on around them so even some extra scenes that really like adds this feeling of like reality yep. to it which is which is really cool and also like shout out matthew barry who made a cameo yes. on this. <laughs> what the fuck almost like took me He's out a disney employee yeah uh crazy but uh i thought that was really effective especially because they show them when when they first are circling up is when you're they jumped into the battle and i thought yeah. that was really effective to be like oh this is like where they came together and now the they're splash page yeah just just really well done as you said they also jumped to uh thor the dark world they jumped to infinity war for the soul stone is it and one? uh yeah guardians galaxy one yes. in the very beginning uh when quill is dancing around to uh norman greenbaum i think yeah one of those um what do you think of, of jumping to these different movies um and then maybe let's talk about some of the issues with the time travel in this. so i think it was really funny that the time travel is set up with the uh, pim particles mm-hmm. from michael douglas they basically have this new MacGuffin that's being used to go get the old MacGuffins, the infinity stones that was just kind of funny meta thing i noticed uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously the choice to go back to old movies in such a obvious way is uh, is interesting and, and cool. And I think it works really well because it leads to these personal moments, specifically Cap looking longingly at Peggy Carter and, of course, Tony's pretty long, substantial conversation with his father. Also, we get Nebula and War Machine watching Quill. Definitely a weird combo. Um <laughs> And I thought that one that that one really didn't really matter that much, except for getting us established with the the return of Thanos yes. from the other timeline, right? And the Nebula connection, the R two D two of it all, right? Mm-hmm. So interesting and I, another unexpected way to we're going to bring Thanos back from the other timeline. Like they're really getting truly leading into uh, po- possibilities potential of time travel in your stories, mm-hmm. which is funny because. Leading up to it, they make fun of Back to the Future and Hot Tub Time Machine and all these yep. other movies that have done it in real life, right? And I think ultimately, Endgame has a lot of the issues that arise when you introduce time travel in terms of the rules that you set up just may not making sense. Mm-hmm. And the more you think about it, the more confusing it gets. Um, yeah. For example, uh, Thor in Dark World, he gets Mjolnir back. He gets his hammer, which is great. And it leads to the first genuine moment of cheers in my theater when Cap wields it yes. towards the end, yep. which was awesome, yeah. which actually is comic precedent. I didn't know that. Um, but it leaves a question. So in the other timeline that still needs to function properly, Thor just doesn't have his hammer. It's just gone. Right. It just flew away. Right. You can't think about it too hard. No. That, that's kind of the issue with time travel. Well, but overall, I think it's done. Uh, it's told very confidently and ultimately works pretty well. Yeah, my my biggest time travel, I guess, like nitpick is, you know, you have Captain America who chooses to go back in time and just live out his life without being Captain America. And it's like, how does all this happen? Captain America isn't in any of these timelines. Like I my my brain can't wrap itself around a lot of that stuff. And I'm just like, 
And also in that timeline, there's still a frozen Captain America, we assume. Right. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah, n- none of it makes you, sense you, to me. But you, it doesn't take away from the send off. We'll get to those later. Exactly. It just you can't think about it too hard. It just doesn't work. And, and that's <laughs> the thing is that you know you're suspending a lot of belief with these things if you're really getting hung up on the time travel, which I haven't seen a lot of it, which I'm happy about. But if you are, it's like how, why is this where you're drawing your line? I think you're looking for something to nitpick yeah, and just yeah. not enjoy it at this point. Sure. And, and just to speak quickly, I I like that they went back to all these movies. They really kind of drew in all these different parts of what what makes may has made this run up so great and it expanded on different characters in really great ways you know uh stark gets that moment with his dad you mentioned the the peggy carter moment but you know thor getting the moment with his mom um i think seeing quill just being an idiot was just fun and like a good without way. the music too yeah and then <laughs> you, you pull gamora back into the mix which we talked about in our last pot i wasn't sure she was gonna be able to come back um you know you get to see loki in the battle of new york you know steal the what's that the tesseract yeah tesseract which i thought was also just really funny and well done and tom holland just like showing out for like that one second and then he's out again hiddleston yeah hiddleston sorry um i thought it was really great but that also leaves another question uh loki now has the tesseract in some other, in the other timeline <laughs> we're, we're not we're after not gonna he loses the scepter from the normal turn event so it's like what the hell does that mean is that the loki we're gonna see in the loki tv show on disney plus yeah. i guess maybe i don't know probably ultimately my favorite i think my favorite single i think the, the stark conversation stark's conversation is great mm-hmm. and i think uh, really warm and rdj is uh, we'll talk about him in a second but the scene after after loki's defeat the end, end of avengers one when we see the return of crossbones and the other shield agents and then robert redford's character all these guys we meet in winter soldier before we learn that they're bad dudes cap saying hail hydra yeah. in the elevator and that walking into the elevator is a callback to the elevator fight in winter soldier a great scene anybody want to get out before we start <laughs> but having him literally lean into hail hydra that is a textbook perfect payoff that yep. works so well and i mean really that, that leads into the fans if you if you missed Winter Soldier by chance, which is certainly possible, you could probably see most movies without seeing Winter Soldier. You'd figure it out. That one now you have no idea what that referenced because Hydra just evaporates as a threat. Yep. After that, so, but yeah, I I, I, I thought that was my favorite part. Yeah, and also cool something Redford, Frank Grillo again. And I think it also Natalie Portman yeah. pops in in Dark World, doesn't say anything. Sure, cool. Yeah. Speak to the Cap moment. Um, I think that also speaks to character growth, you know, and I think that's something that they really highlighted in this is how the characters yes. in ways back off of where they where they began and realize that they have to do things that they wouldn't have done back in these times. Cap's just less of a dork. Yeah. And, but also, like, he never would have said Hal Hydra back then. Like, it would have been, like, totally against his principles to say something like that. Um, and now he's like, sometimes you got to do stuff that you don't want to do in order to make the mission successful. And I think that also comes out a bit when they just kill Thanos right in the beginning of the movie, which Cap would have probably been totally against. You know, we need to jail this person or whatever it is. And sure, his character grows a lot. Um, anyways, the the plot is successful. You know, it's a heist movie for like these like what 30, 45 minutes where they're back yes. in time, which I thought was really cool. You got like a lot of act two. Yep, is is that yeah, and it's successful, but. Nebula is caught. Thanos finds out what the plot is, and uh, 2012 Nebula replaces 2022 Nebula or right. 24, whenever it is Nebula, 
and goes back and this will eventually allow Thanos to come in you know 2012 Thanos to come into 2024 um, in order to try to stop yep. the Avengers but in the meantime they get the stones back and wait well, actually we, we kind of skipped a part did we one of the stones they get is the soul stone yeah back from infinity war Good call. hawkeye and black widow are go we get red skull once again being like you must give give something a, to yourself a soul for a just, soul yeah I, I i it's not hugo weaving anymore i know it, but yeah. i just kind of like red skull which is this ridiculous over-the-top villain <laughs> i thought having him come back in infinity war was just kind of a cool nod mm-hmm. to first avenger but having them like both wanting to give it uh, kill yeah. themselves and like as i'm watching i'm like fuck i don't actually know which way this is going because i know they're making the black widow movie in two months and hawkeye is getting a show with kate bishop yep so wh- what's going on and they went with the movie character which i thought was uh ballsy i mean i, I wonder how much of that was scarlett johansson's choice to just, like get me out of the current timeline please i'm, I'm kind of done with this role that ultimately has been pretty undercooked for actress of her caliber if we're being honest but as i said i think it's the best hawkeye role uh, role and best black widow movie thus far and i really i really, I really liked how, how how that went down yeah and I, sure. I think it made a lot of sense to put them together to get the soul stone and for them to have that like battle to like stop each other from killing themselves and wanting to sacrifice themselves to the other was just a really well done scene um you're right so i, I did miss that Jumping forward, though, so they, they get all the stones together. Stark creates a glove that can hold the stones. They decide Banner has to do it because it emits gamma rays and it would probably kill anybody else. Does the snap. Um, and they get to enjoy it for, like, five seconds. <laughs> Ant-Man gets a call yeah. from his, I think, his daughter. He has a goes like, oh, look, there's some plants outside. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then immediately Thanos has come to the future and is just dropping bombs on avengers headquarters and they all survive somehow which unbelievable maybe an unanswerable question how they all survive but they do especially hawkeye yeah i mean hawkeye brody crazy anyways (laughs) basically it leads to hawkeye having to keep the glove away from was it the krill or whatever those are uh that are fighting oh the the dog things i have no idea what they're called i have no idea what they are not not the kree not them not not them they're blue Um, (laughs) but Really, what it leads to is Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America taking on Thanos, who's just waiting down below. While Nebula yeah. uh, from the past, from the future, and Gamora from the past fight Nebula from the past. Yeah, very, very confusing uh, way to talk about that. But <laughs> and that's the thing. At, at this point in the movie, we are fully into this is a time travel dimension hopping film. Yes, and even Thanos is like, hmm. So in nine years, they will they defeated me. And it's like this the, the liberal throwing liberal throwing out of the specific years things are taking place. It's just it's very self referential, and it's like it's almost hard to follow in a sense because you're like they're throwing out some just basic math all the time. Yep. But it was funny like Thanos just sitting there waiting on his Darth Maul shit with his fucking double bladed sword blade thing. But I think that whole setup to that fight. Um, I don't think it looked that awesome. That that was one of the moments where I was like, oh, this is kind of Marvel aesthetic 101. It's just going to be some gray, earthy tones because we're in a bombed-out building area. But having our three core heroes yes. first than- fight Thanos in that way, just badass and awesome, and that's when we get to Cap being worthy 
wielding the hammer. Not quite sure how he becomes worthy, considering it was teased, of course, in Ultron yes. that he maybe could move the hammer a little bit. But how did exactly did this happen? Because what did what 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 changed with Cap? You know, I mean, remember he he knew about Tony's parents. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't matter that much because mm-hmm. it's it's a great moment, awesome, and, and, moment. and a good fight. Yeah, and he knows how to use that hammer immediately. Just starts balling out with it. Um, I, I think that that's a great fight, and it also just shows because I think people didn't really understand how strong Thanos was as a villain um, because he always right. had one of the stones pretty much from the beginning of Infinity War. So. You were like, ah, maybe he's not actually that strong. Maybe right. he almost killed him. But he's, I mean, unbelievably strong. Like, they're throwing everything they got at him. And you can kind of tell that they haven't fought together in a while because it's a little disjointed. They're not really working together that well, uh, the, the three. And Thanos just starts kicking their ass. And it gets to the point where pretty much, like, Thor's incapacitated, Iron Man's struggling, and Captain America's shield has been chopped in half. And you're like, oh, this isn't looking good. And, you know, Thanos has the whole army behind him, and he's like, what I'm about to do to your planet, I'm going to enjoy Josh Brolin yeah. giving... Um, kind of a heel turn yeah. from the Thanos that we got before, who was very calculated and uh, mathematically objective about his whole MO with saving the saving life through killing half of it, right? Yeah. Definitely a change. Well, they were ungrateful, man. They weren't, uh, they weren't right. appreciating what he did for them. Um, anyways, and then... We get it. We get the moment, and Captain America is like walking out, and it's just like him versus this enormous army. And then you hear Cap, can you hear me? And it's Sam, you know, coming over <laughs> the radio, and he goes on your left. And then you see this portal, this strange, this Doctor Strange portal, open up behind Cap, and out walks. I think it's uh, Black Panther. Yeah, Black Panther, Panther Sam. Um, I Bucky. think Zuri, you know, walked out, and but then pretty much all these other portals and everybody, everybody's unsnapped, everybody's there, um, you know, Pepper in an Iron Man suit. Yep. Um, I, I think we didn't get we got everything right. Scarlet Witch. <laughs> yeah. Um, all the other all the Guardians. Spider Man, obviously. Yep. The only everything. the only person that's not there that doesn't come through the portal is Captain Marvel, who has gone off to do something i can't really remember what it was yeah so that was actually something that i kind of noticed right away and this was theorized pretty extensively uh captain marvel has a bit of a power problem mm-hmm. for the mcu she's just so much stronger than basically all of her counterparts so what do we do and this was thrown out in the captain marvel film as well at the end but like what what are they gonna do with captain marvel and it turns out she's um helping the other planets Right, like it's not just Earth that's going through all these issues once half everyone died, right? But just sidelining Captain Marvel and just keeping her out of the story, um, I think works on two wells fronts. Both the power thing, as I just said, but also because she's so new, having her be so involved in this mm-hmm. Endgame time travel story that's clearly about all of the OG characters right. plus like Ant Man and Rocket, right? It just wouldn't have quite fit. But it was cool when she came back, you know. But, I mean, did you like that choice to sideline Captain Marvel? Because like, it kind of seemed like the only path forward for this movie. Yeah. It, this movie was so much more than just, like, the fight against Thanos. It was more about, like, these characters, like, I, I don't want to say redemption. Because it's not even redemption, but just finding a way to bring people back and the, how, how they can do it together as a team. And, man, uh, if they had had Captain Marvel, she would have been like, oh, yeah, we're just going to do these three, three things because I'm super powerful. I have a, I'm a freaking supernova, dude. 
and then mm-hmm. uh, it would have been over pretty quickly. So uh, I, I like that decision. Um, just kind of jumping back into it, it, we finally get Cap saying Avengers assemble. Big fight begins. Awesome fight scene, I thought. Um, some really cool moments. Um, I think the one one of the biggest criticism I've, criticisms I've seen is there's a, a scene where Captain Marvel finally comes back. She destroys Thanos' ship. Uh, Peter Parker hands her the glove because they're trying to get the glove to Ant-Man to do all this stuff. It kind of gets convoluted a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. And then it's all the female superheroes together. Like, and he, Peter Parker's like, I don't know how you're going to get it across there. And then, the you know, it's like Okoye <laughs> and uh, Pepper Potts and... Scarlet Witch, yeah. Gamora. And they're like, don't worry, um, she has help. And people, I think, felt sure. like that was a little bit like shoehorned in almost like two in your face what did you think about that i really liked it i thought it looked really good yeah um yeah it's uh it's on the nose it's in your face mm-hmm. so is tons of shit in the mcu yep i don't really care you know relax it's fine yeah i completely agree i, I felt the same way I, I actually thought it was a really nice moment and yeah really well done um it's also like it's like um in the beginning with the grief group um there's a just a, a gay character talking yeah. to cap and some people are like, uh, Marvel shoehorn this in? Are they trying to make a big deal about a no-name gay character? Mm-hmm. And other people are like, oh, it's just there. It's it's whatever. You know, that's kind of how I stand. It's, it's, I'd rather see than not see it, right? Yeah, part of life. So like, same, same, thing, same thing with the, the girl power. See, I thought it looked great. It was cool. Right. Um, and then, I mean, long story short, they basically keep the glove away. Um, Thanos finally does get it. There's a bunch of different superheroes trying to stop him from snapping and taking everybody away finally you know stark looks at strange strange who had earlier said i can't tell you if this is the the one you know the one in 14 million chance mm-hmm. or can't. timeline and he looks, can't fuck it up yeah then he looks over at strange strange puts his finger up which i thought was just an awesome moment and you see stark like decide he needs to do something goes grabs the glove thanos gets it away does the snap and the stones are somehow in tony's suit and iron man does the snap and gets rid of all you know all thanos's army including thanos and uh tony stark dies from the snap um Mm -hmm. what did you think about that as like an ending to thanos and also tony you know iron man's death scene yeah um, as an end again, because I I didn't expect it to be like different timeline Thanos and just to go about the way. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was a good ending because again, how how are any of these big massive Marvel movies supposed to end with some kind of big fight like this, right? Mm-hmm. But we all we always expected it to the snap to be undone in some fashion, and uh, that's what we got, right? Mm-hmm. It's good enough for me. I don't know. I think I think the whole tons of cgi fighting at the end per typical marvel fashion was fine because you see every familiar face you've ever recognized in the franchise you right. know so it's just more it's just more fun to watch than usual mm-hmm. as a result so i, I liked it i mean tony had another call back the i i am iron man yeah. right at the end there does the snap and dies you know one of my issues with actually I, pro- this is probably my biggest issue with the film and the use of time travel was that early on they set up that Tony is not really interested in trying to reverse anything because he doesn't want to risk what he has, namely his daughter he has with Pepper. And when he finally agrees to it after figuring out 
motivated by the loss of Peter Parker. He tells Cap that he doesn't he wants to preserve the the present while fixing the past, right? And that's kind of the rules they set up that you won't like change your future by going back in the past. But the problem with that is when they set it up and like he he's like I, I don't want to change anything and like him and Cap like have make eye contact and agree, they just set up that Tony's going to make a choice between his kid and the world, and the choice is just never presented because the time travel didn't actually work that way. Right. I thought it was like a weird like they kind of like lobbed the ball up and then they just didn't didn't even attempt to spike it. They just kind of changed mm-hmm. how time travel was set up. So it was kind of weird for me that. It, Tony's sacrifice didn't like like his kid's fine, mm-hmm. and I just thought like they they clearly set it up that, that he's gonna have to make this choice and there's no choice. It's okay. He's just gonna sacrifice himself singularly. Right. And that's good enough. So it was, it's kind of weird because it was on my mind at the end. I was like, wait, so it does it? This doesn't matter. Yeah. But I, I liked. It. I thought it was a really effective send off for for Tony overall. I think that that's a fair criticism. I think more than anything, it almost parallels. To- uh, Tony's dad being killed when he was a kid and how that affected him. And like, he gets that closure with his dad where he says like, you know, uh, thank you for everything. And like talks about like how like his dad impacted him. And I think that kind of helps him come to the realization. Like um, if I, if I do make, the, if I do have to make a sacrifice like that, it's not going to ruin my child. And I think that's something he felt a lot of guilt with, with Peter. And I think those are actually some of the most effective like emotional moments is when Peter comes back and gives him like the big hug. And then when, uh, you know, Peter goes over to him and he's dying and he's like talking to him. I forgot exactly what he says, but I thought those were really well done. Um, and I think, yeah, go ahead. Well, that was a nice callback to the, I don't feel so good. Yep. Mr. Stark scene, you know, having it be reversed and that, yeah, keep going. I really like that scene, though. Yeah, no, and I think I think they actually do a really good job of showing how, you know, talking about character growth, Tony, who in the first one is this, like, you know, playboy and just, like, this smart-ass, really only out for himself, and then you see he has, like, a soft side for Pepper, um, really is very selfless and gives so much of himself to others, and, you know, he flew a nuke into outer space, and what was that? Was that Infinity War? Or no, uh, no, no was, that's the first one. That's the first one. Jesus, getting confused now. But that's what um, led to the PTSD he had in Iron Man yes, three. Yes, you're right. Um, but you know, even in the the funeral scene when they are all at his house, his, his house or his compound or whatever it is, and you see the the boy from Iron Man three all grown up in that, yeah. which people didn't recognize him. I definitely didn't. I had to ask you oh. who it was. Um, but well, it's, it's, it's a it's a new kid, right? Obviously, he's a little kid in Iron Three. <laughs> but yeah, um, I had no idea, obviously. But all these things that uh, like tie in together, I think, really, really well, and show his character growth throughout these movies, not just you know in one or two. That throughout these movies, he became more and more selfless and realized himself as a character, culminating in who he was in the final one. I think it was a really good send off, and I thought. Um, you know, John Favreau's happy with the daughter and the daughter saying, I want a cheeseburger. I thought it was a really nice, like way to kind of like tie things in and pull on those heartstrings a little bit more. Um, but yeah, so they, they defeat Thanos, uh, Iron Man dies. What happens with Captain America, Dave? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Cap, Cap goes to put the Infinity Stones back in their timelines, which we don't end up seeing happen. That was something that 
Tilda Swinton's re- un- unexpected return as the Ancient One. Yeah. Um, uh, set in, set uh, set up that you have to put these back, otherwise I'm not giving you the time stone. Fucking over my timeline, right? Mm-hmm. And it's 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 like honestly a moot point that we don't see it happen and make sure it worked because it's about Cap going away and having Cap. You know, it's funny when I was watching it out. Picked it up on pretty easily, but I didn't expect Cap to actually come back as an old man. I just thought he would never return. Just because uh, like we, because they they established with the tech that it's like you'll get as much time as you want over there, and it's only like a few minutes, seconds for us, right? Like the whole uh, space time continuum of it all, right? And then Bucky picking up on it right away, but you get the the, the passing of the mantle to. Falcon, the Sam, which is again another thing that has comic precedence. Well done. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was really, really great, and uh, you know, having Cap get that last dance, it's uh, pretty warm. Yep. You know, so I, I loved it. By the way, just uh, you know, you brought up uh, Mjolnir. Uh, am I saying that right? The the whole yeah. Thor's hammer. Yeah. Um, Cap brings that back with him when he goes back in time. So perhaps he actually uh, drops that back in Asgard when he returns. Uh, the uh, stone to the dark world or yeah, the infinity stone dark world because huh. he, he does bring that back in time with him so perhaps he actually does return that does he not oh he doesn't come back with it as an old man right well he doesn't have it with him as an old man perhaps he did and, huh. but maybe that would tie up that loose end i don't know anyways uh hawkeye reunited with his family very happy for him and then thor gonna be a guardian now giving uh valkyrie new asgard any other uh, Hulk, I, I'm I'm assuming he's gonna take on like a beast like role for X Men, where he's just gonna kind of be like overseeing the Avengers and sometimes seems like it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, um, Spider Man goes back to school, yeah, and, uh-huh. and no one aged, uh, so everybody died in the snap at that school, apparently. Still in school, yeah. Whatever. Five years later, cool. <laughs> whatever, whatever works. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, overall, this movie I thought hit all the right beats for me. Um, you know, it's. It's really set up, I think, Black Panther, Strange, um, Spider-Man, and Captain Marvel Captain Marvel as the core four moving forward. And we're going to talk a little bit more next week about what the next phase, phase four, will be for Marvel. But, I mean, just why don't we give some wrap-up thoughts here? Because I think we kind of ran through the movie, gave our takes on some of the narrative choices. Anything that we didn't touch on? Um see <laughs> not unique to this movie but i was like oh wait yeah they all can breathe in space no yeah, need for helmets because right. we want to watch the actors faces <laughs> i'm cool with it it's fine <laughs> I, yeah and yeah, I, I think just like my general like wrap-up thoughts is i'm like trying to think about the movie i think they did a really good job of balancing action sequences um which i think are the least important parts of these movies at this point with uh the emotional beats uh, moving the plot along in, in a way that mostly made sense, you know, beyond the time travel um, and also giving all these characters their due time and letting it be funny uh, a lot of the time. I mean, like you said, they made Thor a whole new character in this film. Um, and well, Right, yeah, but continuing. Yeah, continuing. The, the relatively newness to him from Ryan. Right, yeah. And it's this just, it took, uh, I, I think they very easily could have just let him be like sad mopey thor and like it would have been fine but they'd let him be funny they let him be himself and i think they did a really good job of letting all the characters get some really funny moments in there yeah i respect the taco that. scene with that man yeah 
Dave, is this going to break the all-time record for money earned at the box office? So, short answer, it's too early to say. We really need to see how it the drop uh, international and domestic does in the second weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, as we said at the top, $1.22 billion global. Um, that's by far and away a worldwide opening record. Uh, the old record for International Weekend was from Infinity War, and it was only 600-something. Uh, so do that math. Uh, Endgame broke the original record. That was Infinity War. It broke that record by opening day through Friday. Uh, just just mind-blowing shit. It also made 356 or 7, where we still have estimates right now, domestic. The old record was 200. 57 from last year from infinity war crazy just just a mind-blowing monocultural event in terms of movies in terms of anything to have something be this this popular all over the world you haven't seen it's like the china numbers are again blowing away all the records uh beating any previous records that were held by uh, traditional chinese films chinese blockbusters and seeing something earn just as much in China as it did here in the States, it's just unprecedented, especially having that be a Hollywood movie. We're never going to see um, anything like this again in our lifetime. No. And, the, I mean, basically the questions now are um, $1.2 billion, domestic. What records can it get long term? Because it's going it, to, even if, if we give it the lowest multiplier any MCU movie has ever had, which would be Civil Wars. That would still get it to eight hundred million range, which would be good for the second most here in the states. That would pass um, Avatar and Titanic here in the states, but it still leaves The Force Awakens as the highest grossing. The Force Awakens is like nine hundred twenty something here in the states. Ridiculous. Yeah. Now Infinity War only made like six six seventy or something. It was a little less than Black Panther here in the states, despite having a bigger opening. Um, it needs ridiculous legs to beat The Force Awakens. It's going to get a lot closer than I ever expected. But what I, again, I haven't seen the um, second weekend yet. I still think Force Awakens will hold on to this record because it is truly an astounding number to earn here in the States. And part of that is because um, Endgame is having a, kind of a lot of competition here in May. Um, whereas Affinity War, in its fir- out through May, it only really went up against Deadpool 2. And Solo, which ended up being a box office underperformer. Endgame gets another weekend to itself this coming weekend. But then we're going to see Detective Pikachu, which has very strong forecasting. Uh, John Wick 3. Mm -hmm. Aladdin. Rocket Man, which we expect to do well after Bohemian Rhapsody's success. As well as Godzilla King of the Monsters. And then June doesn't slow down either. June will have Dark Phoenix, Secret Life of Pets 2. Secret Life of Pets 1 got like 800 million worldwide. Big movie. And uh, Toy Story 4. So it, I, I just don't think Endgame will truly get those small drops in like weekend six and seven. And that, that's kind of how you have to make your buck, uh, your, your bucks back to truly get to where Force Awakens got to. Yeah. So it'll get close because it just, there's just so much baked in, right? 357, right? But with that, again, if this has a really strong hold in the second weekend, it could happen. And to be honest, four days ago, I did not think this was going to happen. I, I just, this is just, this is so unprecedented. I just didn't think it was possible. Um, as for worldwide, worldwide records, 2.7 billion Avatar. Um, Avatar made 2 billion internationally. Absurd number. 
it's gonna get that now it sounds like it really i think it's gonna come down to how much it truly makes here in the states how front-loaded is endgame given the lack of the given the uh, competition you know but having something have 90 percent market share as a film well i think the most we've seen is 85 it's got over 90 percent mm-hmm. it, it, it's just it's just absurd and, and and truly truly unexpected you know and i i mean i don't think what the only chance we have of this ever happening again is because again the star wars load that gun was shot with force awakens so that's off the table now we've said lion king i think lion king has a chance but i don't think it'll have this big a start so uh probably can throw that out now the only other chance for something like this is avatar 2 if avatar 2 just explodes internationally Mm -hmm. yeah uh, i think that uh sorry i think detective pikachu is the biggest hindrance there because i think it could potentially have even grossed more internationally than avatar did but detective pikachu is just going to be so big over overseas especially they're in like projecting China. like 80 90 million that's big that's crazy. for weekend three yeah like end game end game is gonna win only two weekends here in the states mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy to think about yeah so again we got to see how, how this second weekend does but even even if it doesn't beat the force awakens that hardly matters because disney's market share disney's domination continues uh, continues unabated um end game i think we can both say with confidence uh met and i think even exceeded our expectations so well done russo brothers um really i'm never gonna uh, experience a movie like this again so it's something that i'm definitely probably gonna see again in theaters uh got that amc movie pass so shout out to them um, any last thoughts before we wrap up on Infinity War? Um, I just want to shout out Robert Downey Jr. because I like I, I love I love Chris Evans' portrayal as Cap, especially as he's grown, as we said. Um, but Robert Downey Jr. I think is without a doubt the best single piece of casting in uh, superhero films. I, I have this ahead of. Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, head of Christopher Reeves as Superman. I think it's clearly the best. And it also, Robert Downey Jr.'s just sheer talent as an actor. And again, remember, before he had those alcohol problems, he was a big star earlier in his career. Um, really likable. But he, he, just the sheer charisma and gravitas he can bring to the role was really, really important. And it led us to reestablishing Spider-Man, something that could not, Sony on its own could not succeed with. Um, it helped us pull off Civil War, something that was thought to be very hard to adapt, and ultimately kept this franchise going, MCU in general. And I'm honestly happy that they killed him off for uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s sake, that he can truly leave this role behind, because he has not made really much of anything during mm-hmm. this run, apart from, like, The Judge. And he's a talented, dramatic actor. I like to see him do other stuff at this point. But I think ultimately his, his casting by... Marvel and uh, I think Paramount may have had a hand at the time. Like it was just, it was just a genius move. And who knows how far this got without him? So pretty, pretty, pretty wild, man. Definitely, uh, I agree with everything you said. Um, we got to wrap up there. What do we got next week? So as you mentioned, we're going to talk about the future of Marvel. Obviously, this is not the true end. Mm-hmm. So there's there's movies coming we know about some of them most of them aren't really officially announced so we'll talk all about that what we expect who's the next thanos what's the next silver line plot x-men and fantastic four on the table now how are they going to do that we'll talk a lot about that next week i think that'll be a fun discussion um as for other things uh, 
as I said, there's no, no other movies. There's no other TV right now that's starting or ending. Uh, we want to. Oh, sorry. We want to see Long Shot, the Seth Rogen Charlie Theron movie. I don't even know that much about it. We just know that at South by Southwest, it had like rapturous like reviews, and they said if you can know as little as possible about it, so you enjoy it more. So I'm very excited to see this movie that I don't know that much about. Um, and as for music, uh, YG, PNB Rock, and Vampire Weekend, as you said, are releasing records. And there's also some recent rock records: Ways Blood, Cage the Elephant, Local Natives that we want to get to because we know there's a rock audience out there and we often back burner those records when we have other things that are more present, more mainstream. So we'll get to that. <laughs> Very mainstream week this week. Uh, long pod. So if you sat through it all, we appreciate you. And if you did, share it with your friends and give us that five-star rating review on iTunes and also hit that subscribe button on our YouTube page. Hit us up on Twitter at NostalgiaPod. Dave, you're a good man. I'll see you next week. Not today. Yeah.